Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. This week, we are examining the options for investors seeking income from a moderate level of risk portfolio. This podcast is sponsored by Schroders. The collapse in bond yields to historic lows and the dominance in equity markets of stocks, which pay little or nothing in the way of dividends, has forced many moderate risk investors to confront a dilemma, whether to either accept a lower yield than they might have hoped for or take on more risk. Joining me today to discuss the topic are Andrew Marsh, co-manager of the Artemis Income Fund, Darius McDermott, investment advisor to the Chelsea Multi-Manager Fund range, and Vincent McIntyre, who runs the Aegon Diversified Monthly Income Fund. Thank you all for joining me today. Vincent, we'll come to you first for the first question, please. In a world of such uncertainty from the pandemic to the unprecedented nature of monetary policy, do traditional ways of thinking about risk work anymore? Uh, yes, hello, and a uh, uh, great question. Look, um, I, I mean, you mentioned bond yields there, and I, I, I look back just to, 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 to at where we were uh, at the beginning of this uh, the century, the beginning of 2000, at, at UK gilt yields, uh, which were around 5%. Uh, they're now today around 0.7% um, on the 10-year, and, and real yields uh, uh, 21 years ago were about... Um, Two uh, percent, um, and and today they're minus three and a half percent. And if you just left your cash in the bank at the beginning of the year two thousand, the Bank of England base rate was 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 close to six percent at, at the beginning of the year. Um, so amazingly different times, and 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 I think that's you know your, your uh, the unprecedented monetary policy that we've seen um, really started in two thousand and eight nine after the global financial crisis and. Since then, we've had very low interest rates, uh, very low uh, bond yields, uh, and and that that kind of continues, you know, for for a number for a number of years after two thousand and eight nine, we perhaps were all waiting for bond yields and interest rates to go back up, but it just hasn't happened. And the pandemic last year um, has perhaps just extended that um, uh, period of even low rates for longer. So, yeah, in that in this environment, yeah, uh, risk is a um, uh, is 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 is. Uh, something that we're all having to embrace and think about differently. So, um, you know, uh, you can sit in cash if you're scared of markets, but frankly, when uh, when you're getting negative real yields, as you are today, negative three and a half on the 10-year, on the um, uh, you know, that that's even just sitting in cash is uh, is, is losing your money um, as, as, as the purchasing power of your cash has been eroded. Um, so, um, it, it's, uh, it's certainly a, 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 an interesting time and one where, uh, as investors, as fund managers, you know, we're having to uh, um, we're, we're having to make some some quite interesting decisions on in how we achieve our investment objectives and our income objectives. If you're running an income fund, as 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 I do. Thank you for that, Vincent. Andy, obviously, with your equity income manager's hat on, how can one think about? Um, well, valuations associated with an equity or with an equity sector and the risk associated with them, given how unusual everything is. The discount rate, for example, has been so low for so long. We have uh, the impact of technological disruption. Do any of those metrics, which might be seen as a proxy for risk, mean anything anymore? Well, I'd certainly agree. It's been a, a very unprecedented period and it's, you know, it sort of goes back 
way before the COVID crisis to, to 08, 09, and, and certainly we've seen unprecedented monetary policy since then. And indeed, you know, a couple of decades or more of globalization that have led, led to deflation as well, which is a, a big factor and feature um, uh, which combines with, with that. Um, I think, you know, from our perspective, how do we think about risk as, as income equity portfolio managers? I guess it's important to say what we don't think about as risk. And a lot of people talk about volatility as risk. We don't think that is a risk. Um, that can be as much an opportunity. Share prices can move in the short term violently in some cases, um, driven by sentiment, um, short-term profit warnings. Um, and that really doesn't change the longer-term cash flows of the business. So that volatility is not a risk for us. That can provide us with opportunities. Um, so what would, do we focus on when it comes to risk? As bottom-up stock pick, pickers, um, irrespective of, of the environment, we're always thinking about permanent capital destruction. Um, and this occurs for us when we get the assessment of the duration and potential growth of that cash flow in the longer term incorrect. So our day-to-day -day management of risk is about looking at the businesses, judging whether they can sustain and grow their cash flow. Are they investing enough to drive future growth? And at the end of it all, can they play us a sustainable dividend? And that's really what we spend our days thinking about. But we do question um, whether or not we're at a bit of an inflection point, um, having been through this unprecedented period, and wonder whether or not you know a couple of risks are going to come to the fore again. You know, firstly, valuation risk, which for, which for many have ignored, so the multiple of cash flow that you pay, um, and then the risk of returns being substantially eroded by inflation. Uh, are we at the start of that as well? And you know, they're probably more traditional views of risk, and we question whether or not after the long period that we've seen, if they're coming back. Um, and we think the fund's pretty well positioned for that, but maybe I'll come on and talk about that a bit later. Thank you for that, Andy. Um, Darius, in your role as investment advisor to the Chelsea Multi-Manager Fund range, presumably that's a group of funds, so you have funds for clients with different priorities and perspectives. How do you think about risk anymore? Is it the same as, you know, 20 years ago, it was probably cautious, balanced, adventurous growth income. Do those terms even mean anything anymore, given how unusual everything is in, in the world? And if they do mean something, how, how do you think about the asset classes to as, assign to each of those sort of client types? Uh, well, look, firstly, I think that Vincent and Andy have already highlighted the risk-free rate or, or, or the, the US 10-year or the UK gilt as, as low and negative after inflation. Um, with respect to our, our income fund, I mean, we, the same as, as the other two, have an objective to try and pay a, a, a reasonable and potentially growing yield. And when your risk-free rate is not far off of zero with the US 10-year at, you know, sort of 0.7, um, sorry, 1.4 on the US 10-year and the, the UK gilt on uh, 0.7, you know, if you're trying to yield four or, or north of four, you, 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 you've clearly got challenges. So, you know, Andy again touched on inflation. Inflation risk has entered um, the, this current economic cycle. And you know, when inflation pokes its head up, central banks traditionally raise rates. That is bad for, 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 for bonds, government bonds, corporate bonds. Another area that people historically take, take yield from. So I think we all need to be aware of that. I think transitory has been the word of 2020 and, you know, semi-permanent or whatever the word will be, we'll all be talking about this time next year. Uh, I, I'm not brave enough to predict. But that inflation risk is one thing, but central banks um, 
over raising rates to compensate for an inflation that maybe isn't caused by traditional inflationary forces. We do have supply chain blockages throughout the world, totally um, accelerated by COVID. So I think sort of, you know, the central bank is a risk globally uh, that they might raise rates too quickly. Um, and I think broadly, there's a bit of a disconnect between GDP, which is, you know, booming, the rate cycle, which is yet to start, valuations, which are, I would suggest in most asset classes, very late cycle valuations. So there is a bit of a disconnect. And these are all the sorts of things when one is looking at multi-asset investing that we need to take into account. Thank you, Darius. And we'll um, stay with you uh, for the next question. As you've all mentioned, with yields on most conventional assets low by historical standards, is it the case that an income investor simply has to accept a lower income yield than might have been the case in the past? Perhaps somebody retiring 20 years ago might have thought five or six was eminently reasonable or, or higher. Is it now more a case of two or three and that's your lot? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the basic equation is lower income or higher risk. And, you know, that's not been the case. Uh, I mean, Vincent talked about some of the figures at the turn of the, uh, the turn of the century, you know, when you could get five or six percent on cash. That is no longer the case. And I don't think a return to five or six percent on cash investing is is in the is in the tunnel, if I'm honest. You know, if it comes, then I think we'll be living in a very different economic climate and we'll have all had a pretty rough time before we get there. Um, but what we noticed on the D2C side of our business was post-financial crisis, as rates stayed low, the longer that those rates stayed low post the March 2009 record low then, is the longer that it went on, the more people had to take risk and did take risk with their cash. So they were, you know, they'd, they'd sit on their cash ISAs for three, four years and go, oh dear, this isn't working. Then they transfer some cash ISAs across. So I think there is an acceptance that if you want either a greater return or be certainly higher income, that some form of additional risk is required. In, in, in our own income fund, you know, we've worked particularly hard to try and find alternative sources of, of yield whilst fully accepting that they do come with um, additional risk. You know, things like infrastructure, digital infrastructure, certain sectors of special special property like logistics, shipping and even music royalties are, are areas you can get sort of lower correlated risk. But then they most of these structures do sit in, in investment trust, which when things correlate to one, doesn't matter how diversified you may be, um, they all move in the same way at the same time. So yes, the basic calculation is either lower income from traditional asset classes or higher risk to achieve those high rates of yield. Thank you. Um, Andy, uh, as a UK income guy, 20 years ago, if a client asked you to get 4%, you just bought one or two of the oil companies, one or two of the supermarkets, one or two of the banks, and you were playing golf by lunchtime, right? It was it was all an, an easy world. It's probably not that easy now, Andy, but, um, you know, is, is it a case of uh, the... Uh, the yield that clients just have to accept from an equity income fund is is lower um, than it has been in the past, or ha or are you having to do different things like buy small caps or mid caps or look abroad more? 
In short, David, the answer is no. Um, the reality is our income fund today is generating a yield of around 4%, which to your point is, is very much in line with historic levels. Um, actually, the spread over the UK 10-year, as um, Darius has pointed out, is as high as it's ever been. Um, so we think, you know, for what is a relatively low risk strategy in equity terms, that's a pretty attractive return. Um, and I think what's been interesting, obviously, is, you know, there was much concern about dividends um, coming through the COVID crisis. Some of that was very well placed. But the ability that companies have had to rebuild those dividends over the last 12 months, frankly, has surprised us. Um, management have done a great job. Um, and we've seen that yield come back incredibly strongly. And that's actually reflected in balance sheets now that excluding some of the hardest hit sectors still, um, like travel and leisure, obviously. But outside of that, um, balance sheets being incredibly strong. Um, so companies' cash resources being um, uh, as good as they've been in, in, in many of our, uh, in many cases, over our career. And we're now seeing that with dividends being supplemented by buybacks. Over 30 percent of our portfolio is buying back stock now. So if you combine all that with this potential for higher inflation, a, a higher rate cycle, we think that's pretty attractive, um, particularly when we look at our portfolio, because we think about a third of it would actually see some benefit from higher rates um, and probably over half of it would at worst be resilient. So we think that's a pretty good place to be um, at this point in, in the cycle. Thank you. Um, Vincent, I know that you're... Uh, your funds uh, invest in a, in a wide range of asset classes, the, the clue being in the name with the word diversified. But it, it, is, is it a case that you've um, had to move into more and more exotic things over the years to, to get that, that yield that's on, on your fund now? Or, or are you still able to stay pretty near to, to Main Street? Um, well, look, when we, uh, the Diversified Monthly Income Fund was actually um, started in 2013, the track record of the pooled fund from 2014. But so we sort of started into an environment, you know, the firm had a long history of doing multi-asset, but this particular fund, we started in an environment post the financial crisis. And, and you know, the idea was from the very beginning to, to use all the tools available to us as a, you know, as a multi-asset globally, uh, uh, global investor to, to use all those possible tools. So things like, you know, uh, income that we can get from um, uh, currency carry positions is something that we can help to achieve our, our, our yield. Um, but we also look into, we're, we're a, um, a big credit expertise at our, our firm. Uh, so we've been able to use uh, parts of the credit market that perhaps are a little bit um, intimidating for those who aren't familiar with them. So, for example, um, subordinated debt at banks, um, uh, AT1 Capital, um, that, that's an area where we've um, been able to get uh, very attractive yields and total returns uh, in the last five years or so. Um, now, th those markets have, are, are offering lower yields today, but, but, um, uh, but also in, in corporate high yield historically, we've been able to um, uh, use uh, those parts of the credit market, as I say, that um, are a bit off-piste for, for many, um, but, but within the type of fund we run and with the expertise we have. And, and Darius touched on alternatives such as some of the UK-listed investment trusts, um, whether it's in infrastructure or some of these other esoteric um, uh, ways of harvesting income. So we, we try to make use of all of those um, things as part of our uh, multi-asset funds. Um, and, and yeah, look, it's not, I mean, I think that's the past and we've been able to achieve our yield objectives, our return objectives um, over the last seven, eight years. 
I think the challenge, and we've touched on it, is not just it's actually not just about yield as you look forward, because uh, I think it might be Andy that mentioned that you know it's also about potential for low total returns going forward. So it's a it's a low yield environment going forward, but it's also a low total return environment. So there's not it's not as if just income uh, strategies are have have to deal with this this difficult environment. Thank you for that, Vincent. Um, Andy, we, we'll um, start with you for the next question, if we might. Um, as a as an equity guy, how do you think about diversification in the current market um, environment? Is it simply a case of trying to be exposed to different sectors of the economy or different parts of the world in, in, in geographical terms? But many of those uh, things have, have broken down over the past decade. The world is a more globalised place. How, how can you achieve diversification from an equity income strategy? I think for us, it's, it's really as we always do. Um, we talk about trying to have an eclectic mix of cash flows. Um, we think about stocks on a bottom-up basis, not based on their top-down labels, which often aren't good descriptions of what a stock really is on a bottom-up uh, basis. You know, we, we try to be a true expression of, of active management. We have actual sector and stock limits, um, which you know, mean that um, you know, sometimes during periods where we're UK investors primarily, but bear in mind the UK stock market is, is, a, is very much a global market with over 70% of its revenues overseas. So we, we get some diversity from that. But we do have sector limits um, and, and we try not to be exposed to any one factor, you know, be it value or growth, which again has been much talked about over the last in, equity, in the equity world. Um, a, a lot over the last 12 to 18 months and, and we think we have a foot in both camp and you know we've tried to get to the same sort of total returns not just at the yield uh, over the long term but without the need for a, a seat belt when a style goes in and out of fashion which is um, inevitably the case in, in any investment um, uh, any, any investment that's based on that sort of factor. Thank you for that and um, Darius um, Andy touched on the the perennial debate that I'm sure you've been asked 10 million times about the, the value growth angle and how one thinks about that from a diversification point of view. But more broadly than that, and across asset classes, kind of the purpose of a multi-asset fund historically was have assets that weren't correlated in bonds, government bonds are viewed as not necessarily correlated to, to equities. Maybe that's broken down in this world. How, how can one be be diversified in the, in the multi-asset sense? Well, look, for us, the key thing is, is diversification, but not just for diversification's sake. I always think I want my income for our income fund or for you know the one that we advise on. I want them to be coming from multiple sources because neither Andy or, or I woke up on the 1st of January expecting COVID to hit UK dividends in a way that we all learned that they did. So we want our income to come from multiple sources, equities, um, bonds, property, alternatives, but also we want different currencies and different geographies because to Andy's point about style, you just don't know what's around the corner. So having that level of diversification. So as a multi-asset manager, I've got different asset classes and you know we also have different geographies. So we can go to Asia uh, and get perfectly good, decent yields as we can with European equities. So having when we, we look at diversification, on the income fund that we advise into, it, it, it's it's making sure that those sources of income are diversified. As I say, no, we didn't expect you know COVID to come and particularly hit a more mature market like the UK um, it, it, in such a way that it did. But 
certainly not having all our income sources coming from one geography or one asset was key to us. Thank you for that. And um, Vincent, this, this question really could have been crafted with you in mind because I believe diversified is in the name of your, your product that you manage. So does diversification mean the same to you now as it did in 2013 when you when you launched? Um, well, no, I think I think the um, that things change. You know, um, relationships, correlations between assets uh, evolve, change all the time. And you know, government bonds uh, and the duration risk that you get when you invest in government bonds, uh, or for that matter, investment grade bonds, that that duration risk is um, it's uh, it's not really as attractive a counterbalance to your equity risk as as it was back in 2013 and certainly back 20 years ago. Um, so 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 times are different. Um, and and so that sort of uh, change in in the bond markets that we've touched on a couple of times means that you have to you do have to think in a multi asset portfolio how to deal with that. You know, one simple response is just to lower your equity exposure. You know, if you if you might have had fifty percent exposed to equities in the past, maybe you take that down to forty. Now, the flip side of that is that the equities are the highest returning asset. You they might be the most volatile, but but they're certainly the ones you expect to get the most return from. Then, by cutting your allocation by ten percent, you're you're going to reduce re your returns. And um, so that's these are the, the sort of um, questions we have to ask ourselves and answer as we manage the portfolio uh, through through the different um, uh, market conditions. You know, we can. Uh, um, you know, Darius touched on a number of areas, different asset classes, owning assets in different currencies. So owning assets in US dollar, Japanese yen, Swiss franc. Uh, I mean, we tend to hedge back to GBP um, because we, we, we just don't like, um, uh, we, we do take some currency risk, but our, our starting point is to hedge back um, uh, and manage that currency risk. But but if you, if you allow those assets and those foreign currencies to remain unhedged, then you know that can work in your favour. Uh, those uh, those currencies I mentioned uh, tend to behave in a sort of risk-off sense, so they can help diversify. Um, uh, you know, and 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 add to the overall um, risk management nature of of your portfolio. Um, uh, and then, interestingly enough, I think within equity markets, you now we invest in, in, in global equity markets. Um, I mean, equity markets we uh, have become quite bifurcated in many ways, whether you call it growth versus value or, or however you label it. With some of the fairly rich, extreme even valuations in, in some of the growth uh, tech uh, sectors, uh, you could argue that one way to get some diversification, and this certainly applies in income fund, in, in our fund, um, is is to uh, is to make sure you've got exposure to those sectors that have been sort of somewhat left behind a little bit, and that, for example, in our case, includes building an exposure to banks, uh, bank equity, in the last year or so, um, and that's worked out quite well, not just with dividends, but also in terms of uh, total returns. So I think there's always something you can do, uh, and with a global multi-asset approach such as ours, then uh, as long as there's enough, there, there are some good levers to pull on, then 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 we can get to the end objective. Thank you for that, um, Vincent, and your your comments lead nicely into the next question, almost as if I know what I'm doing. Um, Andy, we'll start with you uh, for this one as well. I think it's it's right up your street. A feature of markets right now is the challenging position faced by some of the income stalwarts of the past, be it from regulation on low interest rates for banks or ESG concerns from miners and oil companies. How do you think about those sort of dividend stalwarts of the past. Many are still paying nice yields, but what, what, what does the future hold? Yeah, well, I think it's it's fair to say um, that there was a rebasing of dividends from those, in quotes, stalwart sectors um, uh, over the COVID crisis, as we obviously saw 
a lot of those businesses' cash flows deteriorate. Uh, and frankly, you know, in some cases, the regulator preclude the payment of dividends, for example, in the banks and some of the other financial sectors. And I think that's allowed for those businesses that were probably over-distributing in the UK um, to reappraise their dividend prospects. We think that's been a good thing. You know, we look at the UK dividend now um, across the market and think it's better covered and better quality than it was coming into the crisis. And, and frankly, we went into the crisis with a lower weighting in those sectors because we could see over the medium to long term some of the challenges that were coming um, around regulation and around ESG concerns for, for the, the energy sector in particular. Um, so I think that focus on bottom up long term uh, has served us well. And now we sit here delivering this yield that's in line with the market, still with a reasonably low exposure to those sectors, which gives us an ESG score that's, that's better than many other fund managers in the market, which, which is which I think is interesting because this concept and perception around income is that you've almost got to be a, a, a dirty actor from an ESG perspective to deliver that income. Well, well we don't think that's the case. Um, and I think it's really to come back to this thing that we view as very important in our process, and that is it's cash flow first, dividend second. The dividend is an output from the cash flow. We spend our time not looking at the yield per se, but thinking about the cash flow uh, uh, that's supporting that dividend. Thank you for that, Andy. Um, Darius, I know you're you're not um, the fund you advise. You're not you're not thinking about it at the individual stock level, but when you are looking at mandates to go into your your um, multi manager income fund, are, would you be concerned at seeing too many of these? traditional sectors in, in an income mandate that you were potentially going to allocate to or or is it just a feature of diversification to have some of those as well? So look, I think this is one of the biggest questions that the asset management industry faces with respect to engagement or exclusion. And unless you've got another half hour for a podcast, I suggest we don't. Um, we only touch the sides of it, but BHP Billiton and this is um, some access to a Janus Henderson Global Dividend Index survey that they, they share with us. BHP Billiton is the second biggest dividend pair globally this in, in the year 2020. Miners. So if you want to transition the planet to electric vehicles, we need cobalt. We need lithium. We need lots of other base metals. And I'm afraid that requires mining. So there needs to be, in my mind, some care and some thought given to the exclusion versus engagement question. The other sector, which we haven't really touched on, of course, is tobaccos. Um, you know, Philip Morris are moving people to e-cigarettes, which is clearly a journey to kill less of their customers. Now, some people have that as a good ESG score. I'm not saying that's my perspective, but I just think that the engagement versus exclusion uh, debate is only just begun as to how particularly uh, the likes of Andy and Vincent, um, you know, engage with companies or at their asset management level. As you say, I, I, we advise on funds that go in and we, 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 we let the fund managers do their job. But I think the ESG debate is only just beginning. And, you know, at this moment in time, I'm fairly neutral as to where we get dividends from except we do try to avoid some of the really sin areas, as, as most asset managers in both income and um, global multi-asset like Vincent will, 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 will be doing on a daily basis. Thank you for that. Vincent, um, how, how do you think about those um, 
income stalwarts as as i sort of alluded to in in uh, questions andy earlier one at one time you could just have those stalwarts and you'd actually get a pretty decent uh, equity income from it and you didn't really need to do anything else presumably that's changing now but is are is there still a role for these things that many would say are ex growth but but high high yield well, you know, I think I think uh, Darius framed it very well. I think it's a it's a really interesting and and a big question for for us all because, frankly, actually, um, the um, you know the dividends that are are, are being paid by oil companies um, and um, miners um, are are you know they may well be able to sustain those dividends. I mean, you know, the very the commodity price is a huge factor here, but you know, um, uh, we're seeing very high dividends from these companies currently and you know under uh, there's interesting um, dynamic here we're under pressure uh, from the uh, ESG concerns generally and shareholders uh, these companies are in, in some cases are reducing their capital investment in into oil fields for example new new oil fields or existing oil fields and and uh, I mean I'm not suggesting there's a shortage of oil supply globally but you know generally less investment um, will mean that supply of oil will fall and uh, and of course, that uh, if we get growth in electric vehicles, um, uh, then uh, the demand for oil falls as we we, we move from uh, uh, from combustion engine to electric vehicles. But that move to electric vehicles um, may take quite some time. I mean, it'll, go, it'll probably go faster than I think, but it'll, it'll still may take some time. Uh, and and um, as we as we go in this journey, um, you know, if oil companies uh, uh, pull back their investments. Um, and we don't actually adopt electric vehicles as quickly as we can, we could look at uh, shortages of supply of oil, and that means higher prices and higher earnings for oil companies in, in, in many cases, So and higher dividends for shareholders. So, so you know, um, the income investor is faced with this interesting dilemma that they might actually get quite nice dividends out of these um, uh, not uh, these companies that are not very good for the environment. But, uh, but again, as Darius mentioned, we cannot uh, make the transition to electric vehicles if we don't dig cobalt and lithium, etc., out of the ground. Thank you for that. Um, okay, guys, relatively um, quick answers for the final question, please. Darius, we'll start with you. Um, where do you see the attractive equity markets right now from an income perspective? There's been some comment that the UK market is suffering because everybody's obsessed with income whereas if you go to the uh, to japan or the us incomes well dividend income is certainly less of a factor how, well, how do you uh, see that right now uh, thank you for letting me go first and i don't want to steal andy's thunder but nevertheless i'm going to have a little go i mean there's two things we have to look at here a dividends in the uk whilst reset in certain sectors are not far off pre-pandemic levels and when i look at valuations simple valuations on the uk versus almost any other geographical reason you know the uk is the cheapest and if you've got a market like the uk that is both cheap on a relative basis paying good dividends with diverse global companies that then then the uk would be um a certain overweight uh, that, that, that I think investors should consider, whilst not cutting your nose off at Europe and Asia for dividends too. But I'll leave my answer brief, maybe let Andy say a little more, but UK first for me. Thank you. Andy, obviously uh, your, your fund is UK focused, so that makes this question really hard for me to frame, but um, <laughs> you can presumably invest some of the capital uh, overseas if you want to. Um, how is your 
allocation to overseas versus UK now relative to history? Well, it's about the same as it's always been. As I say, the, you know, thank you, Darius, for the lead. It's always been a very global stock market. And, and I guess we, w- we would push back on the perception that, that as income fund managers, we, we sit our management teams down and ask them how they're going to pay us a dividend as a starting point um, over the next um, few years. You know, we, we want our management teams to think about how they can sustain and grow their cash flow. Um, and we think we can find companies that can do that. They can invest to drive future growth, which is great because that can all come back in, in dividends. And they still have excess cash, importantly, when they do that to deliver dividends to us. And, and so, you know, we really believe that there's an opportunity here for, um, you know, companies to offer a really good total return to, to Vincent's points. And that really is what we focus on. Um, and, and, you know, our, our fund has delivered you know, a 4% yield with growth of 5%, roughly speaking, over its lifetime. And, and that's really what we're looking for is that total return. And that ensures that you are future-proofing that income. And that is what we think about all the time is not dividend first, it's cash flow first and, and, and dividend second. And if I may, just one other brief point, you know, in, the UK market is much maligned for its its sectors, its concentration and, and, and some of the stocks that are in there. But, you know, we think there's some really interesting businesses in the UK that, that, that could be compared to, um, companies overseas, things like LSE, Sage and Relex, um, Smith's Groups, Burberry, they all have global peers that are trading at often 100% premium to the P that UK stocks are on. Um, and, you know, and so I think there are some real opportunities in the UK market today. Thank you. Uh, Vincent, um, in terms of where your equity allocation is in your in your income uh, mandates, um, is is it UK overweight as it is with with Darius, or or are you finding opportunities elsewhere? Yeah, I think it was just to put a slightly different slant on it, but yeah, I agree with what's been said. I mean, I, I, we we uh, as when we look at the global equity market, um, what we inevitably find ourselves doing is finding um, good income opportunities outside of the US, and and actually the reason that's uh, an interesting thing to think about is that ultimately the US equity market is over 50% of the world index by market cap to the extent that matters um, but of course also in terms of total return uh, you know the US equity market you could argue continues year after year to defy gravity and go up 20 odd percent you know and, and the, despite many of us thinking it's got too far so so as as a total return income investor investing globally not just equities bonds as well you know we we tend to navigate away from the US because we don't get much yield there but we then have to try and manage the risk of that that very strong stock market in the u.s and have some exposure to the u.s thank you for that and thank you to vincent mcintegart who runs the global diversified income fund and agon asset management to darius mcdermott investment advisor to the chelsea multi-manager fund range and andy marsh co-manager of the artemis income fund Thank you to our sponsor, Schroders, and thank you all for joining us today. Please do tune in to the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast and stay safe.